Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. We just thank you for Todd. Lord, I thank you for the preparation that he's done for this sermon in James 5. And Father, I pray that the anointing of your Holy Spirit would just pour over him, through him, and out of him. And Lord, I pray that you would use this vessel of God to speak into our lives everything that you would want us to know. Lord, and I just pray for all of us to have ears to hear and hearts to receive. For I ask it in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. There you go. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. See you all. And uh, anybody tuning in on Zoom or the podcast, welcome. So, you know, we took a break in our series last week for uh, Kenny Allen to come and share. So we're going to finish up our series on James today with Chapter 5. Poor Kara, she was originally, before we knew that Kenny was going to do that thing, I put the schedule together and... Last week was going to be James 5, and then Kara was going to do something this week, and then Kini popped in. So I had to get a hold of Kara and be like, don't prepare anything, I'll, I'll finish up, you know, James. So, um, and then Kara had a little bit of a moment this morning, she's like, he wasn't expecting me to do James 5, was he? <laughs> <laughs> so, which even if that was the case, and she didn't prepare, no big deal. Like, we're... we're we know enough about scripture that we could probably just pull a sermon right out of the scriptures right there. It's we've got the we got the experience for that. You got you got a good leadership team that can do things like that. So not just me. The rest of our leaders can do that just as well. So anyway, so James five. Um, I'm titling this one um, "A Just God Is Backing His People," um, and that's what we're going to look at. Uh, so Kara, basically, it's just James chapter five. Um, I didn't give her a PowerPoint. I'm just verses. So, as we finish up our series on James today, we're coming to this final chapter. Um, now, James has already gone through and he's ad- addressed the dangers of the tongue, right? We've talked about that. Uh, we've talked about the uselessness of deedless faith, right? Which Martin Luther was not a big fan of, if you uh, know anything about uh, Luther's history. And we also looked at the roots of sin being embedded in our desires and our actions, And, you know, when that bears full fruit, it leads to death. So now James is turning his attention to the finale of his letter, the finale of his message, uh, that we are living the walk of faith because we serve a just God who's backing his people. That's where the title is. So chapter 5 continues where chapter 4 left off, because you remember when when they were writing letters back then, Paul wasn't going, chapter 1, chapter 15, all right, we put that in later so we could have uh, reference points. So if you, if you think of James's letter, like chapter 4, he just continues his thought right on into chapter 5. So it picks up where 4 left off. And he leaves off on 4 saying that we scheme and we make plans in our own strength. And the, in that process, we start to become arrogant and self-reliant. <clears throat> From that arrogance... And chapter 4 ends, chapter 5 picks up with the next logical step. If we're scheming for our own plans, we're doing things in our own strength, and we're starting to, 
to develop a level of arrogance, the next logical step in human nature is to start abusing others for the sake of our own sense of self-importance. Who am I? I'm, I'm better. So you plebes will have to do the work and I will reap the benefits. It's just, it's all in our nature. It's the selfishness. I'm going to get my way at the expense of others. And in this particular instance, it's, James applies it to hoarding wealth and resources to the neglect of those who are working with us or working for us to obtain those resources. So from there, James encourages the believers um, to maintain a faithfulness in word and in deed. So yeah, some people are going to be abusive. Some people are going to be like bad leaders, bad bosses. We might fall victim to that. And James is encouraging the believers to maintain a faithfulness in word and in deed, even when bad things happen to us, even when we are treated poorly, because we serve a just God who looks out for his people. So we're going to get into James 5. <coughs> I'll read the chapter and then we'll, we'll break some points down. So starting in verse 1, James says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached to the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains? You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven nor by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. That sounds pretty harsh, but we'll get into that. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. <clears throat> to, to use the old King James, it's the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous male of, um, man availeth much. If you like the, the old King James. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. 
So wrapping up, he says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. So that's the scripture. You know, I'm a big fan of just letting the scripture speak for itself because that's going to have more enduring effects than my commentary on the scripture. <clears throat> so we're going to break some of that down. Um, the first point, so we've got three basic points. First point is um, the sense of self-importance and this arrogance. Um, that when we develop that, what happens is that we're setting ourselves up for a rude awakening when the ruin comes. James utters a warning to those who have grown rich at the expense of others through corrupted management. He says they'll be like fatted calves during the day of slaughter. So, you know, that, that calf doesn't have a clue what he's being prepared for, right? Like he's just eating high on the hog, to use a phrase from back home, right? He's just doing, living at large, but the reason he's allowed to live at large is because he's being groomed for a slaughter. Or maybe the other ones are used for reproduction. He's, he's, his dedication is, like his whole purpose is death. So he's saying that, that those who are growing rich at the expense of others are preparing themselves, they're fattening themselves for some travesty, some destruction down the road. <clears throat> so Proverbs 13, 8 and 11 say this, The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. So we're going to tie that in here in a little bit, but those who, who accumulate their wealth, it's not just in fast ways, but in like dishonest ways. <laughs> like there's, there's a reckoning that comes with that. There's a destruction that comes with that. Um, but as they're gaining it, right, as they're enjoying the dividends coming and going, coming and coming, and, and more and more people are, are being shafted so that they can increase their profits, as their sense of importance grows, so does the target on their back for other self-important people. Like we've heard the phrase, I mean like most of you are older than I am. Um, we've heard the phrase, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, right? Like we know, for the longest time, I didn't understand that. And as a kid, like as a teenager, I thought it was just a dog-eat-dog -dog world, which didn't make any sense to me until I saw it written out, dog-eat-dog. -dog. I'm like, oh, okay, now I see. <clears throat> That's the thing is like in that corruption, in that wealth, um, uh, and, and, and in conniving and scheming, because this is all about self-reliance, right? This self-scheming, um, doing things in our own strength, pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, like being a self-made man, right? That's this whole mentality, is that I don't need God for stuff because I can do things on my own. We're setting ourselves up for failure. And in the end, other people are doing this as well, and everybody's vying for those resources. They want the bigger. They want the better. And it's not just enough to have a lot. They want to have more. And not just more. They want to have more than their neighbor. And not just more than their neighbors. They want to have their neighbor's stuff. Right? Well, that, that kind of butts us right up into the Ten Commandments, right? Don't cover your neighbor's things. But that's the world that we live in. That's the fallen world. Is it? This is dog eat dog. Also, the other phrase, the rat race, right? Like, my, 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 my biggest exposure to that, because I try to stay, like, aloof 
from, uh, from the ways of the world as much as I can. That's just me. There was a, a small stint early on in my marriage where I was working at an office down in Deerfield, and I was living in Antioch. And my, my image of the rat race is 2.94 at 7.30 in the morning. I mean, it, and it's not just like trying to get to work on time. It's trying to keep this other person from passing you. Like, it's a whole culture on rush hour. And, and when I was working that, like, going down, everybody's going the same way. Coming up at 5.30 at night, everybody's going the same way. I mean, it was the worst part of that. Well, one of the worst parts of that job was the commute. To this day, like, when I'm looking for, like, a job, like, prospective uh, employment, I'm like, where's the commute taking me to? Like, how far is this drive? Because I don't want to spend the, the equivalent of a part-time job just driving to my job. Like, what? <laughs> that's just, to me, that's not worth it. It's that rat race, right? Everybody's in the hustle. Everybody's trying to get ahead. And then everybody's trying to get ahead of everybody else. And the more you gain success in that, the more, the bigger the target gets on your back that somebody wants to take you down. That's, that's the way of the world. <clears throat> so all of them are eating, eating each other, right? They're just devouring themselves. And they're all racing to the same end. I remember, I was too young to really understand it when, in the 80s because I was single digits in the 80s. But uh, that famous phrase, that he who dies with the most toys wins, you guys probably remember that phrase. Apparently it was on bumper stickers. That's what, that's what the internet tells me because, you know. <laughs> what I remember, because I remember hearing that but not really understanding, he who dies with the most toys wins, that in high school, I know that other Christians wore these no fear t-shirts. That was a big thing in the 90s. And on the back, it would say something like, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Like, that's, uh, that's pretty much what, what James is here saying, is that like, you're going to go into this rat race, you're going to go dog-eat-dog, dog, you're going to try to get to the top of that food chain, you've got a target on your back, and you're going to die. right? And it ties into that, that question that Jesus asked. Like, what good does it do to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Like, what is the profit? And so this is, this is what James is going after. I mean, like particularly here, it's, it's the rich, right? It's not just, the, not just rich, because it's not a sin to be wealthy. I mean, like, any of us driving a car today is, you know, what, the top 1%, top 10% of the world's population were wealthy. <coughs> it's how we got there. Are we doing this by honest means? Are we doing this with goodwill toward others? Or are we doing this at the expense of others? where we don't care what the fallout is. That's, that's the crux. Because you know, James, he's really about the heart of the matter. It's not about having the wealth. It's not about looking good. It's about where the heart is. That's why he, in chapter 3, he's like, the tongue. If you contain the tongue, you're darn near perfect. Because that tongue is unruly, and it just, it, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. Whenever we speak words over people, we don't know how deep that goes into their mind. We don't know how deep that goes into their emotions. Uh, words have the power to build up and have the power to destroy. And that's why James is like, if you can, if you can get your tongue under control, man, you're going to be a saint in heaven because that is where it's at. 
And Jesus talks about, like, where, does the, where do the words of the tongue come from? The overflow of the heart. So if you've got a good rain on your tongue and you're speaking kingdom words consistently with your tongue, that means your heart is in the kingdom of heaven and it's not on the world and it's not um, in league with the enemy. So James, he gave this admonition, right? And he says the cries of the harvesters, now back then, clearly in agrarian society, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. That would probably be today's unskilled laborers, right? You're hourly working. Those cries have reached the Lord Almighty because they've been taken advantage of, right? Like how many of us have, I mean, like, I imagine we all have felt a little bit of a, a tightening of, of how far our dollars go because of this inflation that's hit in the last couple of years. <laughs> like Shannon and I, we were, like, we were like doing great, like had a good plan, had some stuff going, and then inflation hit and... Boy, we went from like 50 miles an hour to like 15 miles an hour in terms of our goals. And uh, we're feeling it. And we know the Lord's faithful. And we're feeling it. <laughs> you know? So the cries are going up to the Lord. His people are being taken advantage of. Just like the cries of Israel, right, went to the Lord just before Moses. And, and the Lord tells Moses, the cries of my people have been heard. I will answer it. And James is saying the same thing. The cries of my people are being heard. The cries of the laborers who are being unjustly treated are being heard. Something's going to happen. So that's where we move into chapter, uh, verse 7. That he turns his attention to the, to the Christians, the believers, that they're to, to not be part of the dog-eat-dog world. They're not to be part of the rat race. They're to take an alternative path, an alternative life. He says, take solace, take comfort in knowing that the Lord is judge and he will bring the judgment, right? So when we, and that resounds kind of like Paul's stuff in Romans 12, that it's the Lord who brings vengeance, not us. Because he knows how to do perfect vengeance. We just lash out in anger until we get exhausted and then we have a mess to clean up. <laughs> the Lord knows how to do this. So he says, take solace. The Lord's got this. He's got your back. He also says, be careful not to grumble. And this is kind of a weird, like, like, so we're being oppressed. We're having a hard time. And he goes, don't grumble. Because true judgment is all-encompassing. And if you grumble, you might be part of the judgment as well. We're going to break that down here in a little bit. But he says not to be a grumbler in the midst of all of this. And this is why. Let's look at the nature of grumbling. Grumbling fosters ill will towards others. When we grumble, we start seeing other people in negative light. And I'm experiencing this to some degree in the, in the culture of uh, my department at the, at the school district, is that we've, we've got this like separation. So you got my team, which are the field support for all of the teachers. So if their computers break, we go out, we fix the computers. iPads have an issue, we go out and fix that. Accounts issues, we go out. We're, my team of five are supporting almost 900 employees, technology. Internet goes out, we're the first ones on the scene doing that. But then we have another team that, because uh, they have another title. Titles are big when you get into big organizations. They're the specialists. The specialists don't go into the field. Right? The specialists 
don't interact with the users. <laughs> so what's going on is the specialists, their main job is to focus on projects, building the new technology tools that are going to be implemented and try to stitch those together. So this is where the temptation for grumbling comes in. They'll stitch something together and it'll cause a breakdown of this tool and then this tool and then this tool. All of a sudden my team gets 300 tickets in one day trying to fix something that they broke and then because they're the specialists, they're not as responsible for cleaning up the mess. We have to clean up their mess, right? So, like there are people on my team and man, I'll be honest, like I, I fight not to be a grumbler and it's hard not to. I'm not a, I might be a pastor here, I am not a perfect person. It's hard not to get caught into the fray when your coworkers are feeling resentment at this, right? Because like we're, we're in this together. It's a tough run. We're doing it, it's a tough run by God's grace. But what we're seeing is this attitude of ill will towards the specialists, right? Hmm. Now, I could say, is that a Christian thing to do? And the answer is no. But we pull the threads a little bit and we ask, why is that not the Christian thing to do other than the Bible says not to do it, right? Like, there's usually a really, really good reason that God tells us not to do things. So let's, let's pull on that a little bit. The gospel, okay, so we're getting into the Christmas season. What, what is the thing that the angel says to the shepherds out in the field when Jesus is born? They say, yep, goodwill toward men. So the very announcement of Jesus' coming is marked by the phrase, goodwill towards all men. So, that's gospel. Goodwill. Grumbling fosters ill will. So not only are we just struggling with our flesh, right, our natural reaction to being shafted on something, now we're stuck, not to get too epic, but we're stuck with a cosmic battle now. Are we pursuing the gospel? Are we advancing the gospel? Or are we working against the gospel? And some of you were probably in here when I kind of talked about um, supposing the fallen angels understand that their downfall is linked to the gospel being fully spread throughout all the world, they have a vested interest to make sure that the gospel does not go forth. Because if it does, it's shortening their time on earth because their downfall is linked to the gospel spreading to everything. So when we as believers are tempted to foster ill will towards people. Not only are we maybe losing a chance to share the gospel with them, we're actually working against God and spreading the gospel. Oh, okay, so that, that, that gets a little bit bigger in scope. So grumbling is not just uh, blowing off steam at some point. So grumbling and the mindset that feeds it becomes counter- to the mindset of heaven. It becomes counter to the mindset of what God's called us to. And then James, you know, he, he points to the prophets and to Job as examples of enduring. Uh, examples of living with patience in the midst of these hardships. He says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And he warns us not to give that inkling, right, 
of double-mindedness. So when he says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, that's sufficient. If you don't, what do you say? He says, you're going to come under judgment. Why, why would saying not letting your yes be yes and your no be no be put you under judgment? That doesn't, like, that seems a little extreme until let's pull the thread a little bit. <clears throat> let your yes be yes, let your no be no. If, if our yeses aren't yeses and our noes aren't noes, then we're setting up double meanings, double-mindedness, double standards, to which nobody can win. There's no winning with a double standard. There's no winning with double-mindedness. And if we look at the teaching of Jesus, all right, I'm not going to give the chapter and verse because I <laughs> forgot to write it down. James is saying all you need is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Why? Because Jesus, actually I will give the chapter first because I do have it written down. Matthew 5.37. <laughs> Jesus, when he's teaching, he says, let what, you're, what you say simply be yes or no. Why? Because anything more comes from evil. That's a little bit bigger than just a dubious mindset, right? That seems a little bit more sinister. So if our yeses don't mean yes and our noes don't mean no, the origin of that could be demonic. So now, now we're stuck with a question like, am I partnering with the demonic by being double-minded, by holding double standards, by being what the Greek actors would call a hypocrite? Wow, that's uh, it's a little bit more than just yes, no. <laughs> right? So there's something deeper going on there. And, you know, James, when you read his stuff, it's, he's like heavy stuff through the whole book. Like, it's pretty intense. I mean, I'm guessing he's probably hitting a pretty intense audience. But he's saying, like, if it's not a simple yes or a no, you'll be condemned. Why are we condemned? Because now we're partnering with the kingdom of hell and not the kingdom of heaven. Oh, Okay. Because that double-mindedness comes from the evil one. So we, we curtail our tongue. We fill our heart with things from the kingdom of heaven, right? Things that breed life and goodwill towards people. We let that be the overflow. We have a hard time. We don't grumble about it because we don't want to foster ill will. Because if we foster ill will and, and we have a, a, a double-minded attitude, now we're taking on the economy of hell versus the economy of heaven. Wow. Okay. So how do we how do we deal with this? <laughs> like like okay like uh, what are the how tos on this? Like what are there ten easy steps for not partnering with hell? That would be nice. <laughs> so he gives us a little bit of a uh, little bit of guidance uh, in the last part of the chapter. This is verses thirteen through twenty. He says first we have to adopt heavenly mindsets. Right. Well, first we do that through reading the scriptures. We got to know what what the parameter is, so we do that, and then we have our actions follow along. So we're going to just break down what he says here. We're in difficult situations, right? He says, "Is anybody among you in trouble? Let them pray." Right. So instead of wallowing in our bad situation or being a victim. What do we do? We go to the Lord in prayer. Um, I do this, especially when I get stressed out. 
Like, I'm like, oh, man, like, like, insurmountable situation. I don't know how to deal with this. What's the first thing we do? What? For me, I go to prayer. Usually right before I go to bed, I'm like, oh, man, I can't even sleep because I'm so stressed out. So ask the Lord for prayer in that. That, that right there, just the prayer itself, is enough to alleviate a lot of stress. I mean, it might not solve the problem right away. It alleviates the stress so that we can look at things more clearly. And we can hear from heaven, right? We can hear what the Lord's saying, giving us wisdom, giving us that guidance. And he says, if things are going good, you know, sometimes things are going good. Now, there are some negatively bent attitudes that think things are going good, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, it's too good, right? It's, uh, something's got to happen. A lot of times that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> what does James say? He says, don't wait for the other shoe to drop. He says, if things are going good, sing songs of praise. Thank the Lord for the goodness. Um, the other day I was just talking about, uh, I've got a little white journal I keep at home. I don't go to it every day, uh, but I go to it frequently. When I'm feeling stressed or rough or having a hard time, I open it up and I put the date on it, and I just start listing out things that I'm thankful to the Lord for. Because thankfulness has a way of changing the way we think. Things are going good? Let's thank the Lord for it. Let's recount those blessings of the Lord, right? Whenever the Israelites went into the promised land, what do they do? They started standing up like pillars made out of stones as reminders of God's faithfulness, right? They're crossing the Jordan. Twelve strong men pick up big boulders and they walk across the Jordan and they pile them up on the other side as a reminder that God provided a way across the Jordan. Those reminders. That's what I'm doing in that journal. I'm writing down those stones of God's faithfulness. So when I, later down the road, hit something hard, hit something difficult, I can go back and I can chronicle that and see, you know, on November 11th, 2023, the Lord has provided us with this. You know, the Lord has given us this. Blessings from the Lord. You do that regularly. And over 10 years, you're going to have a whole book full of God's faithfulness in your life. Down to the specifics. Right? If things are going good, let them sing songs of praise. Let them recount the thankfulness, the things that God has blessed them with. He goes, is anybody sick? This is dealing with illnesses. Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And the Lord will raise them up. So he does seem to indicate that some illnesses might be related to uh, a sin or an unforgiveness. So he says if they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Remember that, uh, I think it was the guy that was on the mat. They had to like take part of the roof, a part of the house to lower him in. And he goes, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's like, oh. Who do you think you are? You can say things like that. Only God can do that. So what's Jesus' retort? He goes, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? And so he goes, to show you that the Son of Man has, has that authority to forgive sins, he goes to the guy and goes, take up your mat and walk. And he does. So there is, there is a part of our, our mental state and our physical state that is directly related to forgiveness and unforgiveness. That we can actually cause illnesses in our body. I'm not saying all illnesses across the board. If there is unforgiveness in our hearts, that can lead to illnesses inside of us. 
um, because it takes its toll on our mind. It takes its toll on the chemical balance, uh, and, and we can start reducing our immune system in that process. So there's a part of that. So when they come and pray, you know, ask for forgiveness so that forgiveness can be had. And part of that healing process might be related to that. Otherwise, it might just be a regular illness. You go to the Lord, you go for prayer, and the healing comes. So he goes, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Because the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And then he uses the example of Elijah as being somebody with a fervent prayer who's believing, who then prays and the Lord answers his prayer, holds up the rain, causes the rain. <clears throat> so in terms of that, I'm going to, I'd like to re come back to the, this, these five things um, that I think are, are extremely important for uh, a, a solid, thriving life in Jesus. And I like to call it the five-finger death punch of sin. There's five things that have to happen, and it doesn't have to be in a particular order, and it's not a formula. Uh, we're not about formulas here. But these five elements need to take place. <clears throat> it's, let's see here, conviction, contrition, confession, forgiveness, repentance. Conviction, contrition, confession, forgiveness, re repentance. So let's break that down. Conviction. The scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation, right? Scripture is very clear. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for anybody who's in Jesus. Condemnation is like eternal judgment, Christless eternity. Conviction is that prick in your conscience when you've done somebody wrong and it bothers you. That's conviction. Whenever Shannon and I might have a disagreement in the house, by the end of the day, one of us has to go to the other one because there's no peace between us. And there's a conviction there. We need to take care of business. Holy Spirit prompts a conviction saying, you need to do something about this. Something's not right. The day the Lord called me to salvation, I was in a little Pentecostal church, and I was probably one of the back pews, because they had pews and not chairs back in the day. And there's this little dialogue going on in my head. And part of that dialogue is saying, because they're, they're going through like the, the altar call. I don't know if you guys remember the altar calls. Um, traditional churches at the end of the service, they'll have an altar call. Somebody needs you know, prayer, come down to the altar. Little tables about knee high, so just high enough to get your arms on. A little box of tissue next to it. That's usually how it was set up. So they're going through like a couple of rounds, these altar calls, and there's this little thing in my head saying, you need to go down there. And there's another part of me, which I think was me, going, no, no, that's, that's not happening. You really need to go down there. No, no, I'm not going to go down there. You really need, I know I need to go, but I'm not going to go. Like this thing went. I mean, like, I don't know how many rounds, probably five rounds for this altar call. This dialogue going on in my head. You really need to go down there. Finally, it convinced me, okay, all right, I need to go down there. So I start walking, and it just feels like it's way down there. So I'm like, 
Because, you know, new guy visiting the church, you sit in the back. Nobody sits up in the front. See? Nobody sits up in the front. So we're all sitting in the back. <laughs> and so I'm like walking. And then there's another voice saying, no, don't do it. You don't know what you're doing. You're going to make a fool of yourself because you don't know what you're doing. What do you think you're doing? Like, you need to, you need to sit back down. And in my mind, I'm like, yes, yes, I do need to sit back down. So I'm thinking, you know, like, like it's down there. So I'm like, okay, when I get to, get to this pew, I'll just slide back in and sit down. Nobody will notice. And I tried, and I couldn't get in there. It just felt like I was on this conveyor belt, just pulling me right down to the altar. I didn't know what I needed. I didn't know anything about this. I don't know who God is. I don't know who Jesus is, right? The Easter stories is about it. And so I get down there, and the guy comes, and he's like, what do you need prayer for? I don't know. I just know that I need to be down here. That was, that was all I had. He's like, have you... Have you asked the Lord in your life? Are you a believer? No. I said, well, do you want to? Okay. I mean, like, it was very casual. Like, I mean, nothing, no bells and whistles, no I saw the light, no, no angels dancing. It was just, you want, you want to ask the Lord in your life? Okay. So I did, and that was it. I, nothing. Holy Spirit stuff didn't, didn't really, like, happen until later. And it's a Pentecostal church, so eventually it happens, right? It didn't happen then. It was just like, okay, I, I, pray, I prayed this prayer. I'm a Christian. Right, whatever. I didn't know. And then, like, read your Bible. That's all they told me. Read your Bible. You know, <laughs> these little country churches, that's one thing they're good about. Read your Bible. They're not good at telling you how to understand the Bible, but they're good at telling you to read your Bible. So that's what I did through all of my teenage years. I think I'm, by the time I graduated my senior year in high school, I must have gone through the New Testament some seven times. Something like that. Like, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. The Old Testament was a little bit too dense for me. You know, once you get to the begat, 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 and you're just like, oh my goodness, why is this in there? But read your Bible. Conviction, that voice, you need to go down there. You don't know why you need to go down there, but you need to go down there. Things aren't right with your spouse at home. You need to make that clear. <clears throat> you blew up at that guy <coughs> at Love and Oven, right? You got to go back and make that right. Something's not right. You need to clear the airways. That's conviction. Contrition is a technical word for sorrow, right? You're sad that you've harmed somebody else, right? Your actions have caused harm to somebody else. At this point, this might change down the road, and, and some of you more established parents might have more to say on this than I do. But it feels like 90% of parenting is teaching the kids contrition for harming each other. <laughs> and so, learning the contrition part, you know, learning empathy, right? That when somebody else hurts, you hurt. That compassion, right? That compassion means that you hurt with. That's the literal breakdown of the word compassion. There's that contrition that your actions are harming or negatively affecting somebody else. Ultimately, you could say it's negatively affecting your relationship with God. But, so there's conviction, there's contrition, there's the sorrow, right? So what do you do? You've got to clear the airways. How do you clear the airways? You own it. <coughs> Confession, right? This isn't just a little box that, that you sit next to a priest with a little screen, right? Like, we're not Catholic, we're not Anglican, so we don't really do that. But there's this confession element. You get it out in the open. Like, Shannon and I, we're confessing all the time. Oh, man, you did this, it really hurt me, you know, like... Okay, I did do that. It did hurt you. Sorry for that. Contrition, right? Confession. 
And so after we deal with the confession part, there is the forgiveness part. Will you forgive me? Yes, that, that's the thing we're teaching the kids right now. They hurt each other, they get mad at each other. One of them did something to the other one. What do we do? Make them stand next to each other, look each other in the eye and say, I'm sorry for stepping on you. Right? And they say it and the other one says, I forgive you. And then they go and play because, you know, they're like that. Me, I, I'd be more tempted to stew on it. But, you know, that's just me. So there's the forgiveness part. And then, ah, oh, there's that other part, the repentance. To like, not do it again. <laughs> that's another part, repentance. Don't do it again. Like, how do we change the way we think that we just don't go there again? That's the part, and you know, uh, in Romans 12, Paul says that we are a living sacrifice to the Lord. And I think the biggest problem with being a living sacrifice is we'll keep climbing off the altar. And that's the repentance part. Like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to die. I don't want to give it in. But we need to. So conviction, contrition, confession, forgiveness, repentance. If we get that down, if we were to, able to get that down, I would say we'd be near perfection in the Christian walk. Because that's how we propel forward, and that's how we, we conquer what we call sin, right? Those things that go against the kingdom of heaven, that go against God, that go against the goodwill of all people. We get that down. Those five things, I think, is the key to victory um, in this Christian walk. So, in conclusion, after all of that, James, in his letter with both a stern warning about our arrogance and the negative effects that we have on other people. And he gives us a positive way to guard against that so that we can work towards the kingdom of heaven and not against it. <laughs> he gave the warning to those people that are fattened by running the rat race, by the dog-eat-dog -dog world. He gives a warning. Eventually, they're going to be left desolate. He's saying that all of their riches are going to spoil all of their resources are going to be done away with. And they're going to have a target on their back because somebody else is going to take them down and take what they have. That's part of this whole judgment thing. Next, yeah, we're living in that world, and we feel the effects of that, right? To this day, I still feel the effects of the inflation. Christians are called to live differently and respond differently, not grumbling, finding thankfulness for what God is doing for us and drawing us closer to the kingdom of heaven. Because remember, our priority, our value system is not the world's value system. It's not this dog-eat-dog -dog world value system. Our value system is for the kingdom of heaven. It's eternal. Where all of this is going to pass away, what's left is what's eternal. We respond differently because we respond out of that value system. And then finally, like getting the values of the kingdom of heaven, you know, through reading scripture, also through learning how to properly interpret scripture. That's why we have teachers in the church. De developing those mindsets, that value system, and then acting in accordance with those. And, you know, starting with the five. Conviction, contrition, confession, forgiveness, repentance. We start there and work with Jesus Look at goodwill toward all men. That's a pretty good start. That's a pretty good start. So James ends the note with this affirmation that 
the judgment of God is coming and it's going to set right all of the injustices. Completely. Because if we did it, it would be partial. It would be incomplete. And uh, he's going to do it right. We're also called to partner with him in advancing the kingdom of heaven, right? What do we, some of it's sharing the gospel. Some of it's blessing somebody, right? Whatever it is, it's like Byron likes to say, orders from headquarters. If the Lord prompts you to do something very specific, you go do something very specific. It's through faithful belief, words, and deeds. We're, we're doing our beliefs. We're doing our words. We're doing our deeds from the kingdom of heaven in the middle of this crazy, fallen, unjust world because we know the Lord is good and the Lord's timing is perfect no matter what. So that's where he ends us. Um, he's a just God and he's backing his people. He's got us and we're not on our own in this. We're not trying to do things in our own strength. We're not trying to do things for our own gain which means that we don't have to use our own resources. God will be providing those resources, whether it's the spiritual attitude, whether it's financial resources, whether it's um, the knowledge and the wisdom that we've gained. God's going to give it to us as we need it to advance the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> so I'm going to wrap this up. That uh, you know, Anybody listening on the podcast or um, on Zoom right now, if you've never heard about this Jesus, never heard about this God, then you're interested in it, you can just say this inside your mind. You might be driving down the street next to somebody and you don't want to sound like you're crazy praying out loud. I get it. I thought I was looking crazy walking down the aisle to this altar that I didn't even know what I was going down there for. So I, I, get, the dis, I get the discreet thing. So you can, you can say this in your mind because God knows what you think. <clears throat> that, Dear Jesus, I've heard some interesting things today and I'm interested in knowing more about you. Will you reveal yourself to me? Will you show me who you are? And if this is legitimate or not? That's all I'm asking. Amen. That's all you have to do. If you thought that, thought, you prayed that, you know, leave it up to Jesus to show himself to you. He's big enough. I don't have to convince you about the kingdom of heaven. My job is just to talk about it. It's up to him to do the convincing. So if you're interested in that, just leave your mind and heart open uh, for him to talk in any way that he sees fit. So with that, I'm going to close this out in prayer if Tyler wants to come up and do a final song. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. <coughs> thank you, Lord, that you've not only called us out of uh, a fallen and corrupt world, you have called us into your kingdom and you have called us to partner with you in rebuilding this world. Lord, with, with all of the joys of heaven and all of the joys of having peace with you that go with it. And so, dear Heavenly Father, I pray that your words would go out, Lord. Anything that was from you today goes forth and bears good fruit in our hearts, in our actions, and in our minds. Anything that's not of you, Lord, just let it fall by the wayside. Um, because if it's not building the kingdom of heaven, then it's not worth anything. And so, dear Lord, do your work in our lives. Move in our hearts. Help us know you a little bit more, a little bit more deeply as we walk out today in Jesus' name. Hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of the Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal 
at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. God bless you and have a great week.